Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Uh, that video seemed more appropriate at the first service when it was pouring rain when I started my introduction <laughs> at that time, but the sun has come out, and that's a good thing as well. As you're turning there in your Bible, let me begin with this true story about Kenneth Bay. He's the author of the book Not Forgotten. He was a Christian recently imprisoned in North Korea. He made the mistake uh, while leading a tour of Christians in North Korea of leaving on his computer some distinctively Christian messages encouraging his students to pray. When he left his hotel room and the government searched and scanned his computer, they found those messages. So they convicted him of sedition and seeking to undermine the North Korean government by having Christians pray for brothers and sisters in North Korea. And the authorities basically told him this, we already have a God and his name is Kim Il-sung. You came here worshiping a different God and that is a crime. And you say you came to pray for us, but I know you, since you believe in a different God, you came to pray against us and against our great leader. Kenneth Bay was sentenced to 15 years hard labor and became the longest held Christian in a North Korean prison camp. And it was in that prison camp that the prison guard asked Kenneth Bay this question. If your God is so good, then why are you in this prison camp? Now listen to his astonishing response. Kenneth said, if my God were not good, I would not be here to tell you about him. Whoa. Does it really work that way, that, that beyond the hardships and difficulties that come into our lives, that God is still working, that the gospel is still advancing, that even through hardship, that this can actually be a witness of a God who's faithful? That's what Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26 is about. Is that still true today? Friends, the problems in this world are mounting. Some are calling it polycrises. There are multiple overlapping problems happening in our world all at the same time. The geographies of the world are pulsating with no solution at hand. There's political uncertainty. There's personal uncertainty, there's loneliness, there's brokenness. It's been a fearsome three years where millions are dead after COVID-19. But time marches on. And last year, we passed the 8 billion people in the world mark, ahead of schedule, by the way. And so when it comes to our mission, we have the density of the demography and the challenges of the geography, which are quite intense. What do we as followers of God do during these times? Do we run and hide? I'd like to reinforce the fact that the final orders of the Lord Jesus Christ have not been rescinded. And the same mission that the Apostle Paul took so seriously back in the first, mission, first century is the same mission that we need to take seriously today. We pick up our text as Paul is on this mission and he finds himself in prison and the church at Philippi is surely wondering what in the world God is up to. Uh, last week when I introduced the letter to the Philippians, we talked about this idea of choosing joy, specifically focused around the people in your life. And today I want to talk about choosing joy around difficult circumstances that come into your life. And so the title of the message is How to Maintain Your Joy No Matter What. And if you're going to maintain your joy no matter what, you need at least these four things. You need a purpose to live for, you need a priority to live by, you need a power to depend on, and you need a perspective to live with, to see with. So that's where we're headed, and let's pray, and then we will dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving this incredibly joyful letter. And I pray that the words would leap off the page so that they might be relevant to our lives practically today and tomorrow. 
Uh, so we, we pray that you'd make this time rich and real, and what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not would you make us for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. We pick up the letter in verse 12, where Paul continues by saying this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. First of all, what in the world has exactly happened to Paul here? What has happened to him? The answer is his imprisonment in Rome has happened to him. Now, Paul had always wanted to go to Rome, but this is not exactly what he had in mind. He had wanted to go to Rome as a free person for the purpose of spreading the gospel on the mission field. But God had other plans. See, God put Paul in prison in Rome to advance the gospel. That word advance is a fascinating word study. It was a pioneering term that was used of clearing a forest. Philippi was actually a foresting town. In other words, Paul being in prison has cleared a way for the gospel to build uh, structures in a land that does not know the name of Jesus Christ in the city of Rome. So let's drill down on one question. How? How specifically has Paul's imprisonment in Rome advanced the gospel? There's at least two ways. The first one is found in verse 13. He says this, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his background, the imperial guard, the palace guard, would have been the elite troops of the Roman Empire. These guys were personally chosen by Caesar. These were his bodyguards. They were the highest paid people of the empire. When they retired after just 12 years of service, they would become the new statesmen and the leadership of Rome. So think about that for a second. Paul's now interacting with the future leaders of the most important empire in the world. They're stuck with Paul. Paul is their prisoner. He has what you might call a captive audience. That is a joke. These are the jokes, folks. It's okay to laugh. It's all right. That's all I got. That's all I got. It's pretty lame. But if you think about it, actually, there's not a more strategic group that Paul could witness to if he's going to reach the Roman Empire than these guys because these guards had an inside route to the emperor himself. In fact, if you fast forward, uh, forward into chapter 4 of this letter, you're not going to believe who embraced the gospel. Take a look at what he says as he's uh, saying goodbye later in verse 22. Paul says, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Whoa. Historical sources actually tell us some of Emperor's, Emperor Nero's close family actually became Christ followers. It's amazing, isn't it? Someone once said that the time has come when we name our sons Peter and Paul and we name our dogs Nero and Caesar. So how is Paul's imprisonment being used to advance the gospel? Answer number one, Paul got access to individuals that he would not otherwise have access to. On the outside circumstances, it would seem like imprisonment would be a hindrance. If Paul actually says, it's a help. On the outside, it seems like it's, he's in chains. But on the inside, Paul says, I'm actually more free in here than I've ever been. And here he's telling this church at Philippi and showing uh, the, the guards and all of those who are keeping watch over him in Rome that he's willing to even suffer and die for this person, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. I just want you to notice a little rabbit trail. This is exactly the opposite teaching of the prosperity gospel. Their teaching is that we should show the world that Christ is worth following because he will make your life better, because he will make your best life now, because he will make your life easier. That is not what makes Christ look great according to this text. It's Paul's willingness to suffer hardship with joy that is a witness for the gospel. 
So let's ask this question. How does Paul stay so joyful in spite of the fact that everything has not turned out the way he originally planned it? The reason is because Paul had a higher purpose to live for. Paul's purpose was to advance the gospel. So if you want to maintain your joy, no matter what, that's the first thing you need. You need a purpose to live for. Can we say that together? You need a purpose to live for. Can I ask you, what purpose are you living for? Mark Twain once said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. So many people I meet are giving first-class allegiance to second-class causes. But then those causes betray them. They climb the ladder of success only to realize their ladder is leaning against the wrong building. And they say, is this all there is? I gave my whole life for this. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes was about. So how about you? Can you sum up the purpose of your life in one sentence? If I were to walk up to you right now and say, what's the purpose of your life? What would you say? One of my professors, Dr. Ramesh Richard, teaches at Dallas Seminary. He leads a global evangelism ministry called Reach International Ministries. And his purpose in life is changing the way one billion people think and hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if he'll get there, but he's been at it for 40 years uh, through TV ministry conferences and global pastoral training efforts, especially in India. That's his purpose. God made you for a purpose as well. You're not here by accident or to take up space. When you discover your purpose and get right in the center of it, it all fits together. This is what Paul found. And now Paul is noticing that even his imprisonment is part of God's purpose for him. Even his imprisonment is part of God's plan for him. You can put the gospel preacher in prison, but you can't put the gospel in prison. And by the way, in the meantime, while Paul's in prison, he's writing like half the New Testament. And Nero's footing the bill. Ha! <laughs> Friends, this is what we call the providence of God. It's a big word, but it's a word you need to know. It's a word that believers have clung to throughout the ages, that God is always sovereignly working out his purposes. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes it this way, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. God's providence means no matter what happens in the world, God knows, God sees, God cares, and God is working. Not a sparrow falls without him noticing. All things work together for the good. Even the hard things, maybe especially the hard things. There's this passage in Acts chapter 14 that kind of haunts me where the apostles say this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary for us to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? Now, I'm not saying you need to go out there and look for suffering. It will find you. I'm saying, do you believe that beyond the hardship, beyond the evil, though those things are not good, still our God is not confused, our God is not lost, still our God is working behind the scenes his masterful plan, that even the hard things are like broken pieces of glass that God will use to create a kind of a stained glass mosaic in your life, and nothing is beyond the creative artistry of our amazing God who works all things together according to the counsel of his will and makes all all things very good. Do you believe this? I ask this, friends, because when you believe this, you'll have an explanation for the things of this world that you cannot otherwise explain. There's a book by Nicholas 
Taleb, uh, who talks about this concept of anti-fragility. Perhaps you're familiar with his book. He says, you know, some things are fragile and they break easily, and then some things are resilient. They can withstand a lot of difficulties, but then there's other things in this third category called anti-fragile, and they actually, when they face obstacles and difficulties, they actually get stronger. They actually get better. They actually grow. Nicholas Taleb, who's not a Christian, he didn't, uh, he is a Christian, by the way, but he didn't invent that concept. That's a biblical concept. This is what God does in our lives. We, we are anti-fragile. Back to Kenneth Bay. He said this in his book while he was in prison. He realized something. He said this, the moment I stopped praying, God, save me, and instead prayed, God, use me, I felt free. Can you pray that? In the middle of whatever you're going through right now. So the first reason why Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel is because he has access to people he would not otherwise have access to. And the second reason why Paul's imprisonment has advanced the gospel is that he says this has encouraged other believers as well. This is found in verse 14. Check it out. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So other believers became bold because Paul was bold. Think about that. Would that be your response to seeing your brothers and sisters persecuted for their faith? Would that make you more bold? That's what's happening here. Have you ever had your boldness for Christ increase? A few years ago, I noticed in, this in me. Many of you know the story. When we witnessed a physical miracle in our family and my father-in-law was healed miraculously, I noticed I became more bold. After that, that was the first time I ever shared my hope in Jesus with my next-door neighbor for the first time. I think he thought I was nuts, candidly, but I didn't care. Why? Because when you have good news, you share it. And sometimes hardship and how God has seen you through hardship becomes an opportunity for a witness that would have not been there if the hardship did not exist. So Paul's courage is contagious, and it's spreading like wildfire. Think of how this worked in the early church. The Christians were being persecuted by the emperor and being dispersed throughout the world. But because of that diaspora, the gospel spread farther and wider. And by the second century, there was a church father named Tertullian who was pleading with the emperor of Rome, saying the justice of Rome requires justice for the Christians as well. And he pleads with Rome to extend the justice of Rome even to those who call themselves by the name of Christ. But Tertullian said this, but here's what has happened. The blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. Your persecution, Mr. Emperor, is actually only causing this gospel to spread farther and faster and wider than you ever wanted it to. It's like trying to get rid of an ear of corn by burying it. It's just going to sprout and bear a bumper crop. Even in our day, Though the West is waning in terms of its Christian influence, Christianity is not dying out. Instead, the center of Christianity has moved to the global South so that most Christians now do not live in the West. Most Christians now live in Africa and Asia. And while the West is busy deconstructing, the global South is strengthening. Just this week in Kigali, Rwanda, the, the, the Global Anglican Future Conference released their Kigali commitment. It was so encouraging. It was formed to protest the theological and doctrinal shift of the Church of England, where they are calling on the Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury to repent of his apostasy. 
It's encouraging to see them contending for the faith that's once been passed down by the apostles and saints. Another example in our day is that because of the refugee crisis that has been happening over the last few years in the Middle East, this has brought many Muslims to places like Germany and and Europe and Western nations, and many of them have converted to Christianity, having been exposed to that for the first time in a free way. I heard a statistic recently this week that was really interesting. 80% of Muslims who've converted to Christianity in the history of the world have converted since 9-11. This is what the gospel does. The gospel's going to work. It continues to advance. It's been cleared away. And here's the point. No matter what happens in the world, nothing can thwart this plan of God. No angel, no demon, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing can stop the unstoppable force of the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how does God do this and how do we become a part of it? Again, Dr. Ramesh Richard says we can become a part of it by being involved in what he calls the move it, move it strategy. You know that movie Madagascar? You know they popularized that song, move it, move it, I like to move it, move it. <laughs> Put aside the inappropriate dance moves that that song is talking about for a moment and think about that song title in terms of a strategy for missions. Because this is a basic principle that we find in the Apostle Paul and in the New Testament, move it, move it, meaning this, when you move God's word, you move God's work. In other words, if you will move the Word of God, then this will move the work of God. And this is God's intent, that the moving of of His Word will still work today in the moving of His kingdom program. When you move God's Word, you move God's work. This is God's plan. The people of God moving the Word of God through the Spirit of God, making the church of God grow and reach the world for God. Move it, move it. This is the purpose that the Apostle Paul found for his life. My encouragement is to be part of this strategy too. Move it, move it. Would you be willing to move God's word and in turn move God's work? To what new place would you be willing to move the word of God this week? To a co-worker? To a friend? To someone on social media? Lindsay Williams is going to take after the athletes in college. What about you? If you go to Washington, D.C., and you visit the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, every day at the changing of the guard, as the sentinels are relieved, they say these same words every day. Quote, post and orders acknowledged and accepted. And then that begins that 90-step cadence march. Would you be willing to say to God this morning, post and orders acknowledged and accepted? This is the mission. Want to join in it? Wherever you are for the rest of your life, that's the invitation. To be part of God's purpose. My encouragement is to ask everybody in here to share the gospel minimally and reach one person per year. Who's the one person you're working on and reaching out to this year? Who's your one? There's no greater purpose in your life than moving God's word and moving God's work. Move it, move it. So back to Philippians. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel, not trials, not difficulties, not even imprisonment, not even people who are preaching the gospel with false motives. And this is what he talks about next in verses 15 through 17. Take a look. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So here's the reality. 
not everybody in the ministry has pure motives. Turns out some people in Paul's day were preaching the gospel to make a name for themselves or perhaps prove they were superior to Paul as a preacher. There's that word selfish ambition there that will show up later in chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Paul's response to this is very interesting. He says, what then? This is the only question in the whole book of Philippians. The Greek literally means, so what? So what? So what? What does it matter? And he continues, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Question, who are these false teachers? And why is Paul being so lenient on them here? What about getting doctrine wrong? Like if you read the book of Galatians, he doesn't have the same attitude towards the teachers in the book of Galatians. He says, let them be accursed. Remember those guys? Why the difference? The reason for the difference is because these teachers being referred to here in Philippians are getting the content of the gospel correct. It was just that their motives were wrong. As opposed to the false teachers in Galatians, they were getting the actual content of the gospel wrong. That's another matter entirely. And so for this, Paul says, let them spread the word, let them spread the gospel, and let God take care of their motives. Let me keep the main thing the main thing. All right, some people have bad motives. So what? God will sort it all out. What then? So what? Their motives are wrong. Their style might be wrong. But if the message of the gospel is clearly getting out, I will rejoice. And because of this, Paul goes on to say, in a repeated fashion, yes, and I will rejoice. The Greek word for rejoice is the word kara. It's used 72 times in the New Testament. The idea there is to experience pure delight, blessedness, the highest kind of pleasure. But I want you to notice here that it is not a feeling. It is a decision. Paul says, I will rejoice. I will choose to rejoice. Are you choosing that kind of joy in your life despite the difficult circumstances that you're in? This leads us to priority number two. If you want to have joy no matter what, you need not just a purpose to live for, you also need a priority to live by. Can we say that together? You need a priority to live by. There's so many people with mixed up priorities. They don't know where they're coming from. They don't know where they're going. Or they just go from one problem to the next problem. You need to decide what is a priority in your life. The word priority means singular. If you don't choose your priorities, you'll either go around putting out one fire after another, living your life simply from problem to problem to problem, and not choosing what's important. Or you'll let other, decide, other people decide what's a priority in your life and what's important in your life. So have you settled for yourself what's important in your life? Have you learned to distinguish what should come first and what should come second? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. First things first, God first. Think about what really matters. Married people, how many arguments in your marriage over little things happen in your life that don't really matter? Are they really worth losing your joy over? If you want to maintain your joy no matter what, you got to know what's important. Think of that. How many little things that you get offended over, maybe driving on the road, are really worth losing your joy? you got to focus on what really counts. The Bible says in everything you do, put God first. Proverbs 3, 6. God is the priority. Put God first. There's an old saying, how do you spell joy? You remember this, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. In other words, joy comes as a result of you living for something greater than yourself. 
And the great irony is the less you're concerned about yourself and your own joy, the more concerned you are about God and serving him and serving others, the more joyful you become. This is the genius of how God set it up. Friends, the reason why your joy can't be found in the right circumstances is because those circumstances can change. But those aren't supposed to be the source of my joy in the first place. That's the way God set it up. Those things are not what my heart was made for. The reason why there's a constant seeking, the reason why there's a constant longing, the reason why there's this pursuit of happiness that never seems to be satisfied is because there's only one thing that will fill that void in your heart and in mine, and it's God, and God alone. Seems really simplistic, right? That's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants to fool you. He wants to trick you. He wants to tell you what you really need to be happy and joyful is you need more and more and more and more and more. The Bible says there's one thing you really need. There's one thing you really long for. It's a relationship with God. You're never going to be satisfied until you're satisfied in him. And if you try to substitute anything for him, it's, even if it's a good thing, if you try to find your source of ultimate joy in anything but God, mark my words, you will be disappointed. So here's the challenge. Make pursuing God your number one priority. This is what Paul found out. Let me fast forward to chapter 3. Look at the way he says it there. Paul says this in verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Knowing Christ is Paul's number one priority. And if you're a Christian, then knowing Christ needs to be your number one priority. The text continues in verse 19. Paul says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul says, I have two things that give me strength and keep me going. In spite of four years of imprisonment, by the way, one is the prayers of other people, and, and two is the help of God's Spirit. Which leads us to another essential to being joyful no matter what. You need not only a purpose to live for, you need a priority to live by. But number three, you also need a power to depend on. Can we say that together? You need a power to depend on. You need a strength to make it, to keep you going. Life can wear you out. Life can drain you completely. One crisis after another can drain you. You lose your energy. You lose your power. Some of you might be right there. You're ready to throw in the towel. You said, I've done the best I could, but it's not good enough, and I'm tired, and I'm sick. You, you need a fresh power supply. This week, my cell phone battery was so low, so I plugged it in, but my plug wasn't working. It wasn't charging it. Turns out one of my daughters had exchanged my plug for her plug because her plug wasn't working good, so she gave me the broken one. <laughs> Teenagers. So I'm stuck with the broken charger. Can I ask you, where are you plugging in? Where do you get your strength to keep going on? Is that source reliable or is that a broken cord? Too many people look to sources that do not satisfy. Sources of pleasure. I just need my glass of wine every night or two or three. That's how I get by. It's empty. Substance abuse, entertainment, the source of food. Here, Paul gives us God's answer to our personal energy crisis. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, Paul says, I found a source of supply that's infinite. It's unlimited. It knows no end. It's boundless. It never runs out. 
If you want to be joyful no matter what, you need a reliable power source to claim and depend on. The scriptures say God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. There's a song that says, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. Here's our problems. Here's our problem. Ready? When we face difficulties, our temptation is to blame God rather than claim God. Can we say that together? When we face difficulties, our temptation is to blame God rather than claim God. Take a picture of the screen. We are always looking for someone to blame. This is not my fault. This is the blame everything generation. This is my parents' fault. This is my friend's fault. Maybe this is even God's fault. God doesn't care about me. That's why I'm suffering. God should be like not just a helicopter parent making sure everything's okay. He should be the Zamboni parent clearing every obstacle out of my path so that nothing hard will ever happen to me. And so instead of claiming God, we blame God. And I just want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that when I read the New Testament, when I read the book of Philippians, when I hear the words of the apostles and the disciples, this is not what they were doing when they faced difficulties and trials. They were not blaming God. They were claiming God. They were claiming God's promises. They were claiming God's power. They were claiming God's everlasting spirit at work in all circumstances. They were claiming God's providence. They were claiming God's sovereignty. They were claiming God. And so here's the challenge for us. When you face difficulties, will you choose to blame God or will you choose to claim God? That decision is a choice. And one of those choices is going to lead you astray, but one of those choices is going to lead you to choose joy. Paul continues in verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's such an amazing verse about resilience in the present and hope for the future at the same time. To live is Christ and to die is, is gain. It's, it's just such a rich and beautiful, wonderful set of words, so tightly bound together there. Verse 21, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, even to try to explain verse 21 is to touch the balance and ruin it in some way. Verse 21 is the gospel. Verse 21 is holy ground. Let's walk on this holy ground for a moment together. And let's look at this verse. To live is Christ. There's actually no Greek word for is in this sentence. Literally, it, le it reads, to live, Christ. Paul says, for me, this is my new reality now. This is my identity now. To me, to live is Christ. My old identity is passing away. The new has come. This is what we call in theology the doctrine of the union with Christ. That when you place your faith in Jesus, all of the sin, all of the shame in your life is done away at the bottom of the sea. And now we are made one with Christ. And everything that he is is true of us. And Paul says this in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. 
Just think of it. They've taken every single thing they could take away from Paul's life, his friends, his job, his freedom, his privacy. They've taken everything away from him except the one thing they cannot take away from him, and they cannot take it away from you either, friends, and that is Christ. To live is Christ. It reminds me of the prayer of St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. To live is Christ. Can I ask you something? How would you fill in the blank? For me, to live is fill in the blank. Based on advertising, I'd say most Americans would fill in the blank with one of three options. Number one, for me, to live is possessions. Get all you can get. Get, get, get. I got to work to keep up with the Joneses, and just about time I catch up with the Joneses, they refinance, and I'm in trouble again. And while I'm so busy impressing everybody, they're not even watching me. You know, Dave Ramsey says, I spend money on stuff I, uh, I spend money I don't have on stuff I don't, I can't afford to impress people I don't even like. <laughs> this is dumb. You got to live your life for a greater purpose than possession. Option two, maybe for other people, they say, for me, to live is pleasure. If it feels good, do it. Anything to make my life more comfortable, more pleasurable, anything to relieve my boredom for just a little moment or over the weekend, but then Monday comes and it's back to work. And life is still the pit, so pleasure is fleeting. Isn't this the whole point of Ecclesiastes? It doesn't last. Option three, for me to live is popularity. If other people would just think well of me, sometimes teenagers, they will do anything to fit into their peer group, even if it means lowering their ethical standards. But you could be the most popular person on your campus, come back two years later, and nobody remembers you. One minute you're the hero, next minute you're in the zero. Do you guys remember middle school? Do you remember how important it was in seventh grade to be cool? Someone once said that even as adults, there's like a little seventh grader living on the inside of us that still wants to be liked. And so we dress for success, and we dress to impress. Image is everything. The problem with all this possessions and pleasure and, and popularity is it doesn't last even one lifetime, much less eternity. There isn't anything ultimate in terms of fulfillment in these things. If this were true, then the people who were the most popular would be the most happy. If this were true, then the people who could afford to have the most expensive experiences would be the most joyful. If this were true, then the people who were the, the, the most well-recognized would be the happiest people on the planet. But they're not. Why not? Because it isn't true. But let me ask you again, how would you complete this sentence? For me, to live is fill in the blank. If you could go to the next slide. Some of you might fill in that blank. For me, to live is my career. I've invested everything. You're going to give your blood, sweat, and tears for your career, and then it's going to be over. Or some of you would say, for me, to live is a nice home. But the fact is, there's more to life than the things of the here and now. Based on the word of God, 
I'm going to suggest there's only one answer to fill in this blank that's going to last 100 years from now or even 50 years from now, much less 10,000 years from now. There's only one answer to that question that will last forever. For me to live is Christ. Why not live for something that will fulfill you? The best use of your life is to invest it in something that will outlast it. And so this leads us to the last essential to maintaining our joy no matter what. You need not only a purpose to live for and a priority to live by and a power to depend on, you also need a perspective to see with. Can we say that? You need a perspective to see with. You need an eternal perspective. Look back at that verse for a moment. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, if to live is money, then to die is loss. If to live is my house or my boat or my vacation or my car or my stuff, then to die is loss. But if to live is Christ, then to die is more Christ. Don't you realize you're going to spend so much more time on the other side of death than you are on this side? You need an eternal perspective. This is what Paul found. This is what you need to find. Look at that word hope in that verse. Circle that word if you have your Bible open. You cannot live without hope. I saw a study from Cornell University where they studied 25,000 POWs that served in World War II. And they found that these men could handle such tremendous stress and difficulty in their life. But what they could never handle was being without hope. you got to have hope to cope, they say. The moment hope is gone, you're doomed Paul found hope. We need to find hope. Paul has an eternal hope. Look at how he finishes the passage. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's like a rock in a hard place. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. There's that word joy. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture where Paul is expressing some kind of ambivalence here between living and dying. He's waffling back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. On the one hand, release from prison would allow him to continue preaching Christ and keep working. If I'm not going to go, let's get to work. But he reasons, if I die, then I'm going to be with Christ right away. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That would be a very good thing. So he's torn. Now be careful, because for Paul, he's not saying this life is bad and heaven is good. No, he's saying this life is good, but heaven is far better. And all believers share this same blessed hope. It is an eternal hope. Friends, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Nor has it ever even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. You need an eternal perspective. A couple years ago when Billy Graham died, perhaps you you saw this in the news, written by him. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I have gone to the presence of God. One of the great Puritan authors, Matthew Henry, actually wrote a message to his congregation in preparation for his own funeral. 
to be read after he died to those who would come to the service. I'd like to read this to you. I read it yesterday. We had a funeral here for, for Walter Edmonds, and I thought it would be appropriate to read it again for today's message because it's so relevant. Here's what Matthew Henry said. Would you like to know where I am? I'm at home in my father's house, in the mansions prepared for me here. I'm where I want to be, no longer on the stormy sea, but in God's safe, quiet harbor. My sowing time is done, and I'm reaping. My joy is as the joy of harvest. Would you like to know what I'm doing? I see God. God is through a glass darkly, but face to face. I'm engaged in the sweet enjoyment of my precious Redeemer. I'm singing hallelujahs to him who sits upon the throne, and I'm constantly praising him. Would you like to know what blessed company I keep? It's better than the best on earth. Here are the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. I'm with many of my old acquaintances with whom I worked and prayed and who have come here before me. Lastly, would you, would you know how long this will, will continue? It's a dawn that never fades. After millions and millions of ages, it will be as fresh as it is now. Therefore, weep not for me. Friends, you need an eternal perspective. If you want to have joy no matter what, you need these four things. You need a purpose to live for. You need a transcendent purpose. You need a priority to live by. You need an ultimate priority. You need a power to depend on. You need a spiritual power. And you need a perspective to see with. You need an eternal perspective. This is how you choose joy no matter what. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and I want to finish that story of Kenneth Bay. Thankfully, by the providence of God, he was released from prison and allowed to return home. As he writes in his book about the opportunities he had while he was on the inside, he said some amazing stories, but he said this happened on his last day. He said, the warden himself came to my cell to say goodbye to me. And he grabbed my hand and he shook it. And he said with tears in my eyes, I want to see you again sometime. And Kenneth Bay said, yes, I would like to come back and see you as well. Kenneth Bay wrote this in his book. The one thing I want people to take away from my story and from reading this book is God's faithfulness. God was faithful to Kenneth Bay. God was faithful to the Apostle Paul. And God will be faithful to you. This is how you have joy no matter what. Can we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving these encouraging and joyful words. They speak right to our heart, right where we need it. So I pray that you develop us as the rain comes in our life, that we wouldn't be fragile, we wouldn't even be resilient, but we'd learn to be anti-fragile, that the difficulties and obstacles that come our way would cause us to grow. In our process of sanctification, Spirit of the living God, we yield ourselves to you and invite you to come and do your work so that we might maintain our joy no matter what and be a witness to others of this joy that never ceases and never runs out. 
so that our lives might be characterized by that same phrase, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.